The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What You Miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week was the first one for President Biden in the White House, and the newly inaugurated president used these initial days to outline his administration's plan to respond to the pandemic and economic fallout. Biden and his team struck a very different tone than the one we had heard during the Obama years with little discussion of deficits and Treasury nominee Janet Yellen telling senators the government needs to, quote, act big, unquote, on fiscal stimulus during her confirmation hearing. We got some perspective on President Biden's proposed $1.9 trillion plan from Liz Pancotti, who's a senior advisor at Employ America. We started by asking Liz if this was an opening bid or a list of priorities the administration really wants to get done. I think it's both. So I think it is an opening bid from the Biden administration. I will say that in terms of opening bids, it's a very high one. I mean, we saw in the last, you know, in the Great Recession, they were reluctant to go over $1 trillion for the package that supported the economy throughout the entire recovery. Uh, that was obviously not big enough. And throughout this, but you know, throughout the, the last several months, I guess we're now almost at a year, um, there hasn't been kind of the reluctance to go over $1 trillion, though, for this, you know, for the package at the end of the year, uh, they stayed under that price tag. And so I will say that, like, passing the $1 trillion mark is notable yeah. uh, and, and kind of meaningful for the Biden administration to come in and say, we're not going to stick to those numbers. And Biden himself is hit very hard saying that, you know, now is not the time to worry about the deficit. Now is not the time to hold back. Um, I think today, you know, uh, Janet Yellen said in her confirmation hearing that now is really the time to spend as interest rates are low and, and you know, squashing that spending will, will drag on the recovery. So I think it is an opening bid. I think there are things in the bill that uh, senators and, and House leaders would prefer that they go bigger on or prefer it include other things. Um, I think this two-step approach as the president-elect outlined of rescue and recovery, you know, in tandem will be more expensive than $1.9 trillion. I will note that, like, we have a very detailed plan from the president-elect, but this isn't bill text. And so he'll have to work with his, you know, his administration will have to work with the Senate to come up with bill text. And I would expect that some things will evolve over that process. I am curious. Talks will get bigger. Yeah, I'm curious, Liz, because a lot of focus is on the stimulus part of this, the idea of getting us all to spend more. Of course, Yellen talked about the scarring to the economy. There's an element of this that really has to be about how do you make whole what we lost during the pandemic, getting all those people who lost their jobs back employed, not only employed, but fully employed and fully up to speed with regards to their former wages. How effective do you think the proposals are going to be in doing that aspect of it? Yeah. So notably, the proposal focuses on on two things. And I think the the second half, the kind of build back better, the recovery reproach will will focus on uh, bringing back jobs. Um, EPI, the Economic Policy Institute, estimates that extending unemployment insurance, which the bill, you know, which the plan does um, through the end of the year, the plan suggests September. I think it could go further than that. Um, but EPI suggests that extending those UI programs will save or create five million jobs. We know that, you know, since February, we're down 10 million that we have not recovered. Um, Moody's estimates that the entire plan will create 18 million jobs and we're down 10 so if they could get if they could get those you know net 
uh, 10, 15 million jobs, that would be great and would obviously promote, you know, even tighter labor markets than we had before this pandemic. I think it will take time to get there. Um, but but spending now and kind of the framework that they've outlined is certainly a, a good way to grow and to focus on, on tighter labor markets. Liz, in terms of the bang for the buck, which is a quote that keeps being used, but did you agree that it is the UI, the unemployment insurance, it is the extension of food stamps that should come swiftly after the focus on healthcare, basically, and getting the vaccine in people's arms? Yes, I think those are both really important. I think focusing on on school reopening safely, on business reopening safely, focusing on small business aid, as you know, Secretary Yellen added to that list of UI and SNAP. I'd also say that direct cash relief is a really great way to invigorate the economy and to promote consumer spending. And we know that that worked in the in the last round of them. Um, the six hundred dollar checks. I think we they've they've gone out. We don't have data on them yet. And I would assume that the you know fourteen hundred dollar top off to get to two thousand dollar checks would obviously stimulate consumer spending, um, which you know goes back into the economy to small businesses and, um, you know, back to, uh, you know, I think one in five renters are behind on their on their rent or or, or, um, mortgages. And so getting money back into those markets is really important. And so that direct cash relief, I would add, is a big bang for your buck as well. You know, going back to the Obama administration, the Recovery Act was much uh, smaller in terms dollar terms. And there was a inclination very early on to worry about uh, the deficit, even with rates very low and so forth. What do you think explains the lack of fear that this administration has and the policy advisors surrounding Biden, their lack of deficit fears? I think one learning from our mistakes. I mean, it was very clear that the reason the recovery was so slow and it dragged on for so long. Um, I mean, we were there were the black unemployment rate was still quite low going into this crisis, or it was still quite high going into this crisis. And those you know folks took the longest to recover. So I think it's two parts. It's one learning from our mistakes, and two a real focus on equity and recovery and making sure that the people who are typically the last to rebound are you know supported by this by this bill and by you know the entire package. Um, I think the other part, you know, in addition to keeping it below $1 trillion in the Great Recession, there was also this kind of shot. There was this thought that you could only have one shot. You got right. one bill and that was it. We weren't going to do anything else. Um, and, you know, there were some short-term extensions of unemployment insurance in the following years, but there was no real big, you know, economic invigorating package. And here there's a real focus on doing sustained, um, sustained stimulus to make sure that that rebound continues to happen. And there's no fear of a double dip or of a prolonged recovery. Do you worry, though, about some of the structural changes that we've seen during COVID-19, that those changes might be permanent with regards to kind of the economy and and specifically how it ties into the labor market? Absolutely. I mean, I think the hospitality industry, service industry, those jobs are going to be the slowest to recover and the least likely to recover. And so I think focusing stimulus on those industries as we can will be really important. Focusing on small businesses, you know, Amazon was able to weather this crisis. You know, your favorite restaurant on Main Street in your downtown probably wasn't. And so really focusing on the hardest hit industries, I think, will be really important. Luckily, the Biden administration and, you know, Secretary to be Yellen and, uh, you know, other administration officials are really focused on targeted relief both to consumers and to workers but also to you know the businesses and sectors that have been the hardest hit to kind of robustly um, respond to to all of this. Liz it was an aside and probably not your forte I realize but the focus she had on China in particular and the fact that she's going to play tough how much does that impact from a global perspective how how a manufacturing focus the U.S. will have in terms of rebuilding its workforce what sort of implications does that have in your minds of getting people back to work any at all? 
Yeah, I think it definitely ties in. And I think the kind of second half of the president-elect's plan, um, the Build Back Better plan, and kind of a focus on infrastructure and manufacturing and making sure that those jobs are good, high-paying union jobs is really important. And it will certainly play into you know global competition and also our, our domestic labor market. We also got a check on the economic road ahead from the Nobel Prize winning economist Joe Stiglitz, who is also a professor at Columbia University. We spoke with him on Thursday after getting this week's initial jobless claims report, which only ticked down slightly and still remains elevated, with nearly one million Americans filing for initial claims. We started by asking Professor Stiglitz if President Biden's stimulus package is sufficient enough to ensure that we get back to pre-pandemic levels of output. I think it is. Remember, there's a lot of uncertainty about this COVID-19. There is this mutation that's going around. But if the vaccine uh, continues to be effective, and if Americans take the vaccine and we get the pandemic under control, I'm optimistic that uh, we will have a strong recovery, but we need that $1.9 trillion. Uh, The amount of damage that could be done in the next few months without that uh, would be hard to repair. You know, there's an old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And what we're trying to do is prevent long-term damage to the economy. Professor, when we talk about repairing the damage to the economy and more importantly, preventing or at least mitigating a potential economic crises down the road. There's a lot of talk here about rethinking fiscal policy. There's a lot of talk about uh, sort of automatic triggers that would sort of help people in need at a time. When you see that type of discussion going on in Washington right now and someone comes to you and says, what should we do? What do you say? Well, uh, I'm very pleased that this discussion has been going on because I've been a long-term advocate of what are called automatic stabilizers. You know, when the unemployment rate gets elevated, uh, we should automatic, we shouldn't have to have a long discussion in Congress. Uh, In 1946, we passed a law committing the U.S. to uh, do everything it could to maintain full employment and implicitly to help the people who get unemployed because of our failure to maintain full employment. So my view is that if we put in an automatic stabilizer that automatically when unemployment rate gets elevated, we extend the unemployment insurance program, we strengthen the unemployment insurance program. That's an example. Another example is when the economy goes into a downturn, the revenues of the state and localities plummet. And uh, that is a negative feedback, which leads to a weakening in the economy. Uh, We ought to do just the opposite. When revenues go down, not because they've cut taxes, but because the level of economic activity has gone down, then there ought to be an automatic revenue sharing program that kicks in that enables the stakes and localities to maintain our essential services of education, health, welfare. Um, and that would be good you know, for our well-being, but it would also be good for our economy in terms of stabilizing the economy. So those are the kinds of measures that uh, will make for a, an economy that works better over the long run. And then policymakers ought to be focusing on uh, 
fine-tuning it beyond that? Is there something special about this or that economic downturn yeah. that can draw their attention? Like the pandemic has a lot of special features. You can't do that automatically. Uh, we yeah. have to have for the pandemic the special kinds of assistance for uh, the healthcare sector to, to protect people because of the disease itself. Professor, I'm interested in the long-term nature and the worry about scarring to the labor force longer term, a lot of permanent unemployment now turning around. How do you direct and target that particular nature to ensure that people can get reskilled? Are you worried about the long-term damage here? Well, I am, and uh, most of the advanced countries worried about it. Uh, they set up programs to uh, do what they could to keep uh, the links between workers and their employers uh, throughout the pandemic. And unfortunately, uh, the United States didn't have uh, leadership at the top, and we didn't uh, uh, get the kind of program that uh, uh, worked in some of the other countries like New Zealand and Denmark. Uh, and the result of that is we have this enormous spike in unemployment. And as the numbers today point out, you know, another 900,000 uh, people in unemployment and another uh, almost 500,000 under the uh, special program for the self-employed uh, uh, self whose incomes have plummeted. So th those are uh, drastic numbers. So uh, you're right. Uh, what we're going to have to, uh, we, we, we will be worried, should be worried about, uh, uh, will there be this long-term scarring? I'm hopeful that uh, as the economy picks up again, uh, many of these people will naturally get rehired, but I think we'll have to have some, you might, what we call active labor programs uh, to help uh, retrain workers. One of the things that's going to be happening is there may be some restructuring of our economy. We know that, we need that. But uh, whenever there's restructuring, you have to give some assistance to enable people to move from the sectors that are uh, the sectors of the past, like the fossil fuel, into the sector, the new sectors, like renewable energy and the caring sectors. Pro Professor Stiglitz, obviously a major priority is going to be getting back to pre-crisis levels of activity. But then the bigger question is, what is the longer-term trajectory? How does the economy reverse some of the deepening trends of inequality that we were seeing long uh, before uh, the coronavirus hit, long before people were talking about K-shaped recoveries and so on? We know that's something that's on the administration's mind. From a legislative standpoint, what would be the key thing in your view that the White House should pursue such that the post-crisis economy doesn't look like the uh, pre-crisis, uh, the, the strains that we were seeing pre-crisis? I mean, you're absolutely right. We don't want to go back to where we were in January 2020. We want to, uh, as uh, President Biden says, we want to build back better. And part of building back better is to build back with less inequality. Well, actually, in his speech uh, last Thursday, he outlined two measures that are important. Uh, one is increasing the, un uh, the minimum wage. You know, it's, it's really quite remarkable. Most Americans don't realize that adjusted for inflation, the minimum wage in the United States today is the same level that it was roughly 65 years ago. Can you imagine? No pay raise in 65 years. And uh, the evidence is that we could, uh, 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 it, it would be good for our economy 
to have that kind of uh, increase in, in the minimum wage. It won't uh, cause a loss of job. It'll actually stimulate the economy. The other thing he talked about was an increase in the earned income uh, tax credit. Um, that's a, a way of rewarding work. Uh, uh, we, we need to do that more. And a lot of my more, you know, you say conservative friends agree that that's an important instrument. They would rather have more of that instrument than an increase in minimum wage. Uh, they think that's the, you know, in the mm. balance, they would like to see more of of an increase in the uh, earned income tax credit. One of the things that uh, uh, is uh, very notable about the United States distinguishes us from all the other advanced countries is that we have a weaker system of social protection. A an example was very manifest in the, uh, uh, in, in the pandemic. We don't have mandatory paid sick leave. And the consequences of that was that uh, with so many Americans living paycheck to paycheck, they went to work even when they were sick. Uh, it was bad uh, health policy, but it's also cruel. So uh, including something in, in, in his package was uh, uh, better uh, social protection. And these are measures that he put as temporary. They need to be part of, of, of the right. long term. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. With a new year upon us, we also took a look at what issues business leaders are paying most attention to in 2021. The conference board surveyed more than 900 global CEOs in November and December for the C-Suite Challenge about their outlook and biggest problems keeping them up at night. Chief Economist Dana Peterson took us through their findings, and we started by asking how much an effective vaccine rollout is weighing on the minds of CEOs. Well, our survey of, of CEOs that we published just, well, CEOs and also C-suite members that we published just yesterday shows that it's the number three issue on the minds of executives in terms of how quickly the vaccine can get into the arms of their employees, how quickly they can open back up the doors to allow their employees to come home, especially in the U.S., um, not come home, but <laughs> come back to the job. But especially in the U.S., uh, there's a great um, desire to bring people back to work. And consequently, as we bring people back to work, that should help to open up the economy and really get things going again, hopefully in the second half of this year. Dana, uh, U.S. policy, government policy has been, I guess, somewhat erratic over the last four years, to put it diplomatically. Uh, did any of the CEOs talk or, or respond in a way about the potential change in administration here and whether that would actually stabilize uh, some of the policy directives going forward? Well, we do think there might have been a bit of a Biden effect, uh, certainly in anticipation of uh, the policies of the next administration. Indeed, uh, many executives thought that certainly uh, uncertainty around trade and global stability or instability would be lessened with the next administration. However, they were a little bit more concerned about increase in re regulation. And certainly both of those things are, are areas that the next administration is definitely focused upon. 
Dana, I'm interested in the sort of difference in responses from, say, the Chinese CEOs versus the U.S. CEOs. It sort of strikes me amazing that U.S. CEOs are feeling that the vaccine is such a game changer, whereas Chinese CEOs aren't. Is that simply because they've managed to get COVID under control to a greater extent? Or are they seeing work from home as a longer term viable option? What's the deal? I mean, our thoughts are it's likely the first that, um, you know, in China, they were able to really aggressively address the virus, get it under control, reopen the economy, reestablish exports. And so to that extent, in terms of being a big driver of economic activity, the vaccine probably doesn't matter as much for China internally, but certainly for the rest of the world um, that's still struggling in terms of seeing increases in cases, the vaccine is going to be quite important, at least according to executives that we surveyed. So, you know, obviously, it's one of the things that we've been talking about all week is the weirdness of what's going on with domestic U.S. politics, which is in, you know, has been in uncharted territory, and the seeming disconnect that has between what's happening in the stock market, what's happening in the economy, where people remain uh, fairly optimistic. How does what's going on in Washington specifically, the scenes that we saw at the Capitol last week, the impeachment drama, everything else, uh, way, uh, how do how do CEOs view all that? Well, um, the thing is that I mean it's tough to know because our survey was taken uh, over the November through December span, and we don't have yet our CEO confidence survey that we do on a quarterly basis. But I would imagine that when we look at the stock market reaction, I mean, stock markets are basically excited about any additional stimulus, either from the Fed right. or from the government, and so. Um, certainly there is a disconnect between what's going on in stock markets and what's going on in terms of the real economy. But I would imagine that in our upcoming uh, quarterly survey of CEOs, that there may be some concerns certainly about uh, uh, stability when it comes to government. But again, in our survey that we did take before all this happened, um, there certainly was a little bit more um, or a little less angst about uh, government policy going forward. What about uh, everyone working from home? Uh, hmm. I was told a few months ago, this is just going to be forever. We're all going to work from home. Then we heard from a bunch of CEOs saying, nah, we're, we're getting everyone back here. Uh, what's the general sentiment out there right now with regards to the work from home uh, trend? Sure. It's interesting. There was a pretty big dichotomy between the way U.S. CEOs viewed work from home and CEOs from the rest of the world. U.S. CEOs do see that or at least feel that work from home is is not a trend that's going to go away, but there is a larger push to get people back into the office. So what we're expecting is that there's probably going to be a hybrid model in the U.S. where, but still not more people working from home than before. And certainly globally, it seems like there's much more affinity for work from home. Dana, how are the real estate CEOs on the back of that? I mean, people, even if longer term, they think that perhaps they will get people back to the office. I'm sure it's going to be on a flexible basis. Are people just going to be scaling back? Well, I think the answer here is location, 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 right? So if you are a realtor um, in uh, the residential area, this is probably a really great boon for you as people are leaving central cities uh, and uh, moving out into the suburbs and exurbs into rural areas. People are looking for larger uh, houses where they have offices where they can actually affect work from home. Um, so certainly for, and also if you are in commercial real estate, out in those suburban areas where more people are expected to move, then that's beneficial. But it certainly is a negative uh, for many realtors and the real estate sector in these cities, these big cities where um, people are 
are leaving, either they're moving out or they're working from home so they don't need to come in from day to day. So it's really a mixed picture here. And there will be lots of questions in terms of what do we do with all the extra office space that we're seeing in these larger cities. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. And we wrapped up the week speaking with Corey Hofstein, the co-founder and CIO of Newfound Research, for a quant perspective on the changing market dynamics that's getting more and more extreme in equity markets, particularly with the rise of retail participation. Well, I think we have to ask ourselves how much the meta game has changed. I think there's a lot of people out there who would say this feels a lot like 1999. Maybe it's 1996, maybe it's 2000 and the dance has already ended. But I think what makes today a little bit different that a lot of people aren't recognizing is the role of forums like Reddit's Wall Street Bets, the access that investors now have to trade options via applications like Robinhood, the lower commissions in which they're getting charged. And candidly, the role of social media platforms in influencing a lot of these trades. We're seeing, if you look at some of the alternative data, a big pickup among financial YouTubers and financial TikTok uh, influencers talking about trading options in a lot of these retail favorite names. And I think that's having uh, a bigger outsized influence than a lot of people would believe. Corey, it clearly took Citroen research off guard. Is it, how are you factoring it into your investment thesis? How does one mm. factor it in? Are they, how do you do your research to ensure that your fundamental analysis might seem secure, but when you're betting against the wrong group, it doesn't carry any weight? Well, we're a quantitative firm, so, so it doesn't really play in from the fundamental perspective, but it is something you do have to start considering as to how it's gonna play with a lot of the quantitative factors that we would look at. So for example, momentum as a factor would start to look like at a stock like GameStop and say, wow, that's been on a run. It's outperformed its peers. That's going to rank highly on a short-term momentum measure. But I think it's important that researchers who are working in momentum start to take into account some of these dynamics and say, well, our expectation is that momentum works because investors are underreacting to fundamental news that's flowing into the market, not because we have option buyers and short sellers going to war it with each other. Talk a little bit more about what we're seeing in the option market, Corey. There was some research going around earlier this week from Talback and about uh, the lack of put options out there in terms of uh, uh, the, uh, the outstanding amount out there and how this was some sort of signal that maybe there was a systemic risk element uh, in the market uh, should this bubble actually prove to be a bubble. What are you seeing? I think what we're seeing is a huge adoption of out-of-the-money call option buying, particularly short-dated call option buying among more retail participants. I think there are very real barriers to entry within the asset management space. Most mutual funds can't just go out there and buy options. It's, it takes a long 
time to get that set up within an existing fund. But retail investors can just jump into the frenzy. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a huge adoption of call options, higher call option volume than almost ever historically. And a lot of that is small lot orders, which would suggest it is retail investors that are actually doing the trading. And so I think that when it's retail investors who are buying upside calls and individual securities, if you do get a large concentrated effort among those investors, whether it's on purpose or not, just because of social media influence, I think that can have an outsized effect because of the implicit leverage that they're playing with. So I want to go back to your point a little bit about how this sort of new um, sort of retail participation can create the appearance of a classical sort of momentum move, but maybe is not going to behave fundamentally the same way. Talk to us a little bit more about the trick, you know, how tricky that is. If a TikTok influencer like Romaine gets on there talking about a GameStop or something, creating the appearance of classical momentum, but not necessarily going to behave in the way research would predict. Sure, so research would predict, right, the very naive momentum factor would be we would rank stocks based on, say, their 12-month return and uh, prefer those stocks that have relatively outperformed their peers, expecting them to outperform in the short term. The classical research doesn't take into account when that performance happens, though. It doesn't matter whether that performance occurred overall 12 months or mm. whether there was a rocket ship in the last month. And so if you have these frothy situations where an individual's security is not necessarily creating consistent gains, but you're seeing something like a GameStop or a plug that is uh, right. dramatically jumping within a one month period, well, momentum investors, if they're not careful, are going to start picking up on those names. And they may be able to ride the wave of retail if that is truly what's influencing it, but they also may ultimately end up be the bag holders uh, as retail moves out of that name and onto something else. Plug Power, the renewable energy company, doing particularly well. Corey, do you expect any regulation to come in hmm. to protect the retail investor in this way and stop this from happening? Well, this is actually a really interesting question that I was having a chat with someone else about earlier today. You know, what, what we sort of saw, at least in my mind today with, with GameStop was, and I, I liken it to this old sort of internet meme of, do you want to fight one horse-sized duck or a thousand duck-sized <laughs> horses? Uh, and what we saw was a thousand duck-sized horses won. You would normally expect that regulators would have an issue if someone's purposefully trying to corner the market and control the stock price. But I don't really know if there's explicit regulation out there around different parties just happening to buy stocks, right? If you have a large confluence of people who all buy short-dated options and it just happens to move the stock price because there's a liquidity mm, issue right. within that security, I don't know if, if that's inherently illegal and I'll, I'll let the lawyers figure that out. But I do think it's something I would expect regulators to start looking at. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Come on. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.